Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by the founder of one of the most successful entertainment companies in Australia, Love Grove Entertainment. Daryl Lovegrove is also the co-founder of The Three Waiters. He is an author, serial entertainer, award-winning performer. So we're going to be talking to him about his story and all that he is doing in the entertainment industry. Dale Lovegrove, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Curtis. And g'day to everybody from Australia. I am down here in Sydney, and it's a great pleasure to be on the show today. I hope we're going to have a lot of fun together. Sydney, Australia. Well, why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, firstly, guys, half Australian and I'm half a Kiwi, which obviously means I'm also from New Zealand. In fact, I was uh, born in New Zealand and spent my first um, three years of my life in Africa in a country called Malawi. Um, and then I moved to Geneva in Switzerland for three years where I went to school, first started school there. And when mum and dad split up, I was about six years old. I came back to New Zealand with my brother who was born in Switzerland. And um, dad moved to Hong Kong. And so the, the next 10 years, we would go and visit him about twice a year. So I had that fantastic, very lucky, gosh, so lucky upbringing to have the African, the European and the Asian sort of influence in my life. But growing up in Auckland, New Zealand uh, was, a, was a terrific experience as well. So, so I was uh, very lucky to have a very kind of robust international kind of um, upbringing. And um, I came to Australia in, in 88 um, because I was really lucky. I got into a big show here called Les Miserables. No, no doubt a lot of you guys have heard of the big show Les Mis. And it was the Australian original cast. They, they'd just done a year and they were having a cast changeover after the first 12 months. And they auditioned performers in New Zealand. And I was um, one of the lucky ones to have been chosen to come over and joined that cast. And so I've been here ever since in Sydney, Australia. I've been really lucky. I've been in shows like, obviously, Les Mis and Chess by the two guys from ABBA and Tim Rice and um, also played Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar in the mid-90s, a big 14, 15-month tour of Jesus Christ Superstar throughout Australia and New Zealand with a guy, Judas. My Judas was a guy called John Stevens and my Mary Magdalene was Danny Hines and it was an um, incredible experience. So really lucky to have had an amazing experience being lots of shows, not just those ones, but lots of plays and other types of musicals. And it got to the end of the 90s when all of a sudden I was at the crossroads because I'd accidentally, <laughs> I put the word together accidentally, with a mate of mine who I was a flatmate with, we accidentally created this show for the corporate entertainment world. And if you're not sure, the listeners out there, what that means is, Think of gala dinners, think of awards nights, charity nights. Think of when people come together for a sort of a three-course meal and there might be some speeches and there might be some entertainment. And that's called corporate entertainment. That's the world that I've, I'm now involved in, have been for 20 years. And that started off because my mate and I, we created the show where we dressed up three opera singers 
as waiters. And we were there, obviously, two of the original three. And we walked around the dinner, pretending one to be, pretending to be an Italian, one pretending to be a Frenchman and the other a local. And we would uh, talk to everybody on the tables and our accents and fool everybody, basically, hoax that we were these European waiters. And then when the entree went down, the main meal, we unleashed ourselves on a very unsuspecting audience with a very funny, interactive, three tenors style show. So it was very operatic. And we did it as a bit of a joke and it exploded like you've never believed. And we, we still can't, I still can't quite believe it ever happened. It was just this thing that all of a sudden everybody in Australia was telling everybody about it. You have to get these, this thing into your event where, you know, these three opera singers walk around and, and do the show. It's incredible. So the wildfire, next thing is, you know, within six months, we've done like 50 shows. It's going like crazy. And then two years later, we moved to, we set up some teams in the United Kingdom, office in London. And then 2001, we set up an office in Los Angeles. And we had about 20 performers all around America. And we, we were now, the, by 2002, 2003, the, the biggest corporate entertainment act in the world. It was just one of those things which went ballistic and, and we were just amazed watching it as much as anybody else. And it was incredible 11 years I had building it up all over the world, this thing called The Three Waiters. And have a look at it if you're interested. And I sold out of it back in 2009. So I'm not in any of the, the images. It's a long time ago. And they've put lots of updated stuff now since then. But I was, you know, with the two guys who put that together and it's still doing before the COVID lockdown, still doing pretty good business. So it's a big story I tell because it's an amazing story of entrepreneurship, of taking risks, of giving it a go. And, you know, I guess following your passions. And uh, that's what I did in a big way. And it paid off hugely. And ever since then, Curtis, I, when I sold out in 2009, I created my own company and you mentioned it in your introduction and that's Love Grove Entertainment. And I've created about eight or nine other acts which have um, done very well. But just here in the Australian market, I haven't, I haven't gone global with any of those. And it's been an incredible experience, you know, during the global financial crisis, as well as obviously COVID and, and lots of things have happened in between. And so I wrote a book about it last year <clears throat> during our very first lockdown here in Sydney. And, um, you know, people have always wanted to know the story. And I tell the story of my career, but also the three waiters and also post three waiters. And, um, and it's ended up being something that's just very, very, very inspirational for a lot of people. They want to hear someone, a story from someone who's been at the coalface, who's really done it, who's taken huge risks and created a global brand. And I guess that's really my story in a nutshell. There's lots more to it. But yeah, so hoping today you guys, um, you know, can uh, get some inspiration from my story and um, maybe go out there and, and, and live your life to full potential. Well, tell us what your life was like before becoming a big global entertainer. Well, the, well, I'm not a global entertainer, but the but the brand certainly is. And well, life before that, as I was saying, it was as a performer, as an actor, and it was a, a marvelous experience. Ever since I was at school, I, I was a, you know I was wanting to be on stage and perform. I did the sensible thing though when I first left school. Like I trained to be a school teacher. I got that out of the way. And I've been able to fall back on that actually during the COVID break, a lockdown, because as many of your listeners would know, in Australia and the United States, all over the world, you know, theatres are closed. There's just no events going on, hasn't been for a long time. And so 18 months ago, I'd, I realised, well, 
there goes my business for who knows how long. So I'll go back and be a school teacher. And so I fell back on that in March last year. And I've sort of been teaching ever since because our lockdown is still going here in, in Australia. I know you guys have you guys have loosened things up a lot in America, but uh, we, we have been very, very strict and we, we, we're always going for the zero thing, which, which is unattainable, but we're, we're slowly coming out of what we're thinking about four weeks' time. But yeah, so, you know, being in the big shows was extraordinary. I get to, got to go all over, you know, Asia Pacific. I toured with Sarah Brightman and the music of Andrew Lloyd Webber and lots of plays. So I managed to live my dream of my passion growing up was as, a, as a performer, as an actor. And I probably would have still gone doing that even to till today if it wasn't for the the three waiters, which sort of well, it presented a really big challenge for me um, because all, when it started to really flourish, and we were getting booked all over the place, I had to become a businessman, and uh, my business partner and I we had to stop what we were doing our normal jobs and go, well, hang on, what's going on here? Well, if we're, this is this is serious, this is this looks like it could be massive. But to be massive, we had to stop what we're doing. He was a photographer for a newspaper and uh, I was a um, obviously an actor. And, and we had to make the decision, okay, well, let's focus on the three waiters. And that's what we did. And uh, to turn it into, I think to, to, just to give you guys a bit of an idea of when we talk about a global brand, to date, it's been performed over 14,000 times and it's been seen in 90 countries. That's nine with a zero. And it's, so it's, it's, it's a massive thing easily the number one show in the world, global corporate entertainment act in the world. And, you know, we've performed for all the presidents and prime ministers you can think of and lots of celebrities. We did Rod Stewart's wedding and lots of other celebrity weddings. And we even performed for those of you guys in the United States who, who have heard of the Three Tenors, which was a huge entertainment act in the 90s. It was three of the biggest opera singers brought together who were our inspiration. Luciano Pavarotti, Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras. When they came together in the early 90s to tour the world as three big opera singers called The Three Tenors, that was what obviously inspired our show. We actually performed for them in 2003, I think it was. And it was uh, at a port, at um, Bath in England, the last show they ever did together. We performed for them at a VIP supper, a post-show supper next door, which a tent had been set up, 20 people. And the producer of that huge concert series had seen us a few weeks before in Monte Carlo and he'd asked, can we, can we, uh, can we do that show that he'd seen for the three tenors <laughs> in two weeks' time kind of thing? And we, we couldn't believe it. The, these guys were our, our inspiration. If it wasn't, there weren't any three tenors, there wouldn't, wouldn't have been any three waiters. So, so, you know, it was amazing for us to actually have the chance to perform for, for those. I wasn't on that show. I was in Australia at the time, but we put three guys from our London team on it and it was a very big successful night and a night I'll never forget yeah so that's sort of life before the three during the three waiters tell us some of the most important and valuable lessons that you have learned in 20 years of being an actor well I probably being an actor that's a tough skin is the first thing I think of you know, we all, I suppose, a lot of us, you know, we, we'd like to think when we're in our teens growing up that we could, you know, maybe if we love singing, if we love acting, we could do it professionally. And the truth of the matter is all those rumours that you hear is absolutely true. It's very, very tough. And if you're going to want to be in the world of acting, you've got to appreciate the fact that you'll be out of work more than you are in work. And that goes, to, that goes with some of the biggest stars in the world, even today. You know, they, 
they don't, if you actually add up all the, all the weeks that they work, there'll be more weeks in their year that they're not working than, except for maybe a, a few very, very keen to work A-list movie stars who seem to go from one movie to the next. But other than that, you know, so you've got to really realise that you're going to be standing in front of audition panels a lot and you just, you might have the great, great voice, you might have a great accent, you might have a, um, something about you really is amazing, but they just cannot see you in the role that they are envisaging. And so you've got to be able to take that rejection and not take it personally because there's plenty of people who come in because I've obviously, I audition people all the time for my acts. And so I've been on both sides of the table. I've auditioned and been the auditionee many times. And I've had some fantastic people audition for me who are just brilliant, what they do, but but they're not right for the show that I'm I'm looking for. So, you know, so the key is really is to have a thick skin and, and treat it as a bit of fun, go in there, have fun to, in the audition situation and be prepared that, you're, you know, they're going to say thanks, but but we, we, we won't be needing you this time. And if you can do that, then you can really free yourself up to throw yourself into that, that, that craft and that industry. And because now and then, yeah, you are going to get the odd role, which is great. But so what you do in your spare time, though, is important as well. So, you know, I recommend that you, you know, find something, a B, a B story, you know, to your life that you can always fall back on. And uh, it might be you know, waiting in, in cafes. It might be stacking boxes in a supermarket. I don't know. I, I like to think that getting a teaching degree was a, was a great thing for me if I was to go back in the acting world because, you know, I can always be a casual school teacher, a leaving school teacher in the times that I'm not working. And so that's when I think about, you say, what was it like 20 years as an actor? It was an extraordinary experience. Got, you know, lots of travel, lots of opening nights and closing nights and great reviews and the odd bad one and the whole gamut of, of you know, eight shows a week with a lot of the shows I'm in and lots of concert performers and performances. And, you know, I, I really got to live that. And I still kind of do the odd thing now and then as well, even now. But, no, I don't regret it at all. And, and as I say, I'd probably still be doing it if it wasn't for this world of corporate entertainment coming in and be becoming a businessman. And, and now I love employing performers myself and getting out there and getting them on stages in front of, in front of audiences and, if I can, performing still myself. Yeah, I've had a remarkably lucky life. I'm very fortunate. And somewhere in there, I had a family and got two daughters who are a bit grown up now, 21 and 16. And so, you know, I, I can't complain at all. I've had a, had a lucky time of it. Well, I know that 9-11 had a big impact on your industry. Tell us how you managed to survive the impact of 9-11 on your industry. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Curtis. You've you've obviously um you know had a look at the points in the book there. Nine eleven was an extraordinary time that for us because we just launched the three waiters in America uh, in January at a big big exhibition sort of trade show in New Orleans in, in January two thousand and one, and um, we moved in. We we set up a place in Marina del Rey in Los Angeles in um of March that year, and you know, still going strong, going very strong in England, going very strong in Australia. And now we were now we were starting in the United States. So it was a very exciting time for us. And the first six months, those six months leading up to 9-11, me flying all over the place, meeting people. In those days, there still weren't DVDs. And so, you know, <laughs> I had I had a Santa sacks full of VHS cassettes that I was con- with our promo video continually 
you know, sending out on the mail every second day, going to the post office, lining up and sending out hundreds of VHS cassette tapes. And I'm going to industry, you know, event industry association meetings and meeting as many people as I could and trying to get them to watch the promo video because I knew once they'd watch it, they go, wow, that looks great. Yeah, I'm going to try to get that at my event. And so it was, a, you know, a struggle to, to do that because the United States is quite different to the UK and Australia because it can, it's so big. You guys have got a country so big there and your cities are so massive. It's like you've got three Londons, eight Birmingham's, you know, 10 Sydney's and, you know, 11 Melbourne's and, and, and it's like, so it's hard to make a big splash in America and get a ripple effect going as it was easily done. Well, not easily, but, you know, as we were able to do in Australia, we, we just had to um, get a bit of an, I guess, brand awareness happening in Sydney and Melbourne and the rest of Australia. We found out about it pretty quickly. Same with London. You know, we were doing very well in London very quickly and it, and it spread out. The next thing is we're all over, we've, we've been booking gigs all over Europe and, and all through the UK. And so not the same in, in America. We did some what we thought reasonably high profile events, but really that, you know, they, they just didn't have the same effect. And so it was a big struggle. But by the time we got to about September, we were starting to, do, to have a few in, and it was starting to, we felt the train was starting to leave the station. It was just taking a long, lot longer to do it. And of course, 9-11 happened. And I was in Sydney at the time and Mark, my, my then business partner, was in the Los Angeles office and I, I told him to get out of bed and, and turn on the TV to watch what was going on. And we knew instantly that things were going to be very different very quickly because we knew this was going to affect events in, a, in America in a, in a big way. And it did. It really, it really, boy, you know, people, I guess, just all of a sudden didn't want to be seen to be putting on lavish parties and big events. They didn't want to be seen to be kind of having a good time when the whole of America was in mourning and in shock. And so all those gigs that we had, we had been able to sell were just cancelled or postponed. And, and I would, the next, and then I met a month later, I flew into Los Angeles and, and swapped places with Mark. And I was faced with a dilemma that it was really, really hard to sell the show because people said, like, we love it, but there's, there's no event for, to hire you guys for because there's no, we're cancelling events here. You know, we're, we're postponing and this is, this is not working out at all. And, and people, don't want to, people don't want to fly, which is a very big problem, as you guys know, in the States. And uh, if, you're not, if people don't want to fly anywhere, then it's very hard to put on events where you know, people could fly into. So, so but I sat down, there was a few times where I thought, my word, you know, maybe we're going to have to just forget it and just concentrate on England and Australia and just you know, say, look, the United States hasn't worked. But I couldn't do it. I mean, day after day going... I think we should, we need to get out, but I just can't. I, it's almost like I didn't have the guts to do it. It was like, I just knew America was going to work. And this was a huge setback that really just shattered the whole industry. I, I was going to association meetings where people were in tears and, you know, the whole events industry just didn't know what to do, but they were looking at each other and, and sharing war stories and not knowing what on earth to do. I was going to the big meetings with all the Hollywood planners, you know, the, all the Hollywood party planners. And they were like, "Why? Well, there's nothing going on. The phones are not ringing. It's a tr big, big problem. And I was a member of the um, Southern California chapter of the International Special Events Society. And, and wherever we went, we were trying to talk it up and saying it's going to change. And, you know, and of course, eventually it did. That's, that's the news. And we, we did ha hang in there through those very difficult months. 
And when we got to the new year, February, March, things had started to move again. And I'm just really glad that we hung at, we, we hung in there and stayed in there because by, I think, May, June, we won the first of what's become many big awards. We won Entertainer of the Year with the Events Solution magazine. And, and we've won quite a few more, more awards in America since then. And, and we've kind of never looked back since then. So it was a big, big example of resilience. I don't think of the word at the time, but, you know, we just couldn't quit. We just, we just had to stay in there and just grind it away and just make the phone calls, just keep on going, keep on going and do whatever it takes, email campaigns, the whole thing. And, and then the phones eventually started ringing again. And by the time I'd left in sort of Easter, the six months following 9-11, we, we were back on the road again. We were, we were looking pretty good. So that was really what 9-11 was, a very worrying time, very big learning experience for us because up to that stage, we'd had three years of, of just unbelievable exponential growth where the whole world wanted it big time, wanted our product. And, they, and we were just, you know, putting teams all over the world everywhere to meet the demand and and we managed to you know meet that demand and then all of a sudden 9-11 changed everything and and it was a very big tough growing process for us but you know we hung in there we got through it and um and we're very happy that we did not only did you have to survive the 9-11 tragedy you also had to survive the massive fallout from the global financial crisis how did you manage to survive that? That was a really tough time, Curtis, because that was the time that I sold my shares in the three waiters. After 11 years of continually flying around the world and, and you know, keeping an eye on the show and keeping the brand at its top peak and, and making sure all our performers were happy and the whole thing, I started to feel that maybe I wasn't enjoying it as much as I used to and, and I knew that I could, you know, I could probably sell it sell my share in the in the um the act and so i started uh, started looking at that around the time that lehman brothers collapsed was was the time that i was starting to negotiate with um pe- people who had expressed interest in buying my share and the next six months when the whole world was collapsing were the six months of me negotiating my exit from the business so, so it was the worst time to sell because you know the Figures coming in from overseas were not looking good every month. They're getting worse and worse. And so, you know, the, val- the value of my share was decreasing and, uh, and it was a worry. So if I'd sold it a year before, I would have probably got a lot more. But I, 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 I managed to do fine. It was okay. And, uh, and so it was a really, really tough time during that thing because all over the world, what we call the GFC, we call, do you call it the GFC in the United States, the global financial crisis? Do you say GFC or do you say global financial crisis? Global financial crisis, but either yeah, one will work. It, yeah, we call it GFC. We call it to the GFC. That shattered the whole events industry, and I don't think it's ever recovered anywhere near the levels that it was up to that point because things changed enormously. Um, you were having big, big events where people were spending quarter of a million dollars every year um, for their company's big, you know, awards night or 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 staff party or something like that, and a major venue in a city. Uh, year after year, and and then and there were, a lot of them were trying to outdo each other, you know, uh, try to outdo their competitors. And then when the GFC happened, there was a complete mind shift where the following year, you know, they might have spent a quarter of a million dollars a year before, and then the GFC happened, and then the following year, it's office drinks, 
they're not going to any venue. There's no big money being spent on anything. They're staying put. They're watching where the world is going with this meltdown. And so that affected everybody who was involved in the events industry. All of a sudden, caterers and AV operators, people are supplying the sound, people are supplying venues. But all of a sudden, they're in trouble, just like they were in 9-11. This, the phones are not ringing. They don't need your services, your products. And it was a massive thing for the events industry. And, you know, here I was at coming out of it, trying to build up my, my new company, Lovegrove Entertainment. And it was just the worst timing. <laughs> but at the same time, I was passionate about it. And I believe that, you know, we were always going to get through whatever the current situation was. And of course we did, but it's never bounced back anywhere near to the level that it was. I just don't think people are prepared to go back into that world of, of spending big money on those big events the way that they used to once upon a time. It was a really exciting time. Um, I was there at the end of the 90s and all through the noughties, where apart from the blip of 9-11, of course, there was lots of money being spent on events. And I just happened to have the the number one show in the world, which was very exciting at the time. So yeah, the global financial crisis was a change the whole look of the events industry, and it's never been the same again. And uh, it's 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 kind of like a very whatever kind of size businesses there were in those days. They're now very very much smaller kind of businesses, a lot less and more employees, and you don't do it to become wealthy or to become rich or anything anymore. It's, 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 a, it's a game that you play because you're passionate about events. You're passionate about entertaining people. You're passionate about, you know, putting on gala dinners and, and parties and, and whatever. So if you're still passionate about that, then you'll still enjoy yourself. But it's just not, the phone's just not going to ring as much as it used to before the global financial crisis. This is a different world now. Did, did you find, what's your experience of, of the global financial crisis, the difference between you know, pre-2009 and after 2009. I think it definitely had a big effect, especially like on real estate and stuff like that. And it had an effect for a few years, then it comes back and then, you know, something else will happen and it'll come back. You know how that goes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What? let's talk about your new book. Tell us about your new book or your book and what listeners can expect. If they read so it. many times when I when I sit down and I, I tell my story to people, they go, my God, you need to write a book. And I go, oh, do I? No, I don't need to write a book. Say, no, you do. It's a fantastic story. You've got, you've got to tell everybody your story. And, um, and also people said you need to tell your story on the, um, as a, on a conference circuit. You need to go to conferences and tell your story. And so I became a keynote speaker in the last 10 years as well and shared my story in many audiences all over the world, including um, the big million-dollar roundtable which was in Toronto in 2014. So I managed to get around, around the place a bit doing that. And last year when the COVID lockdown happened, I remember I was kind of sick and tired of people telling me I need to write a book until I found myself sitting there going, my whole business is smashed. It is not going anywhere for the foreseeable future. What am I going to do with myself? And I realized, oh, maybe, maybe now's the time to finally... <laughs> write the book that everyone says I should be writing. So I did. And I got in touch with a a, kind of like a book advisor, a lady called Jackie. And we sat down and she kind of held my hand through the process. And I wrote a a book. This is basically the third of it is autobiographical. The second is, is business ethos. And the third one is very much a micro looking at um, what we can do and with ourselves 
in re- reinventing ourselves and staying relevant and, um, and building our resilience. Those are the three R's that I talk about a lot, about relevance, reinvention, and resilience. Those are three things that, that I think I've got to, I've got a firsthand experience to share with people. And I'm, and I base it on the anecdotes of my life, my career, and um, got some great stories in there of um, not just from the stage, but in business and, and personal life and all that sort of thing. And um, put it all together in the book, it's called, Why Haven't I Heard of You? And people say, what do you mean? Sounds like a cool name, but where did you get the name from? And I basically, it's my way of saying, look, a lot of you, I'm sure when you've talked about your own lives and when you meet people and they see what you do, that now and then you've met people who are going to go, wow, that's impressive. You know, why haven't I heard of you? Because that's what I've, I was told a lot of when I would step off a stage with performing or I've been on a conference stage and I walk off and people go, oh my God, what an amazing story you have. I don't understand why I haven't heard of you. you know? And, and it, it was a question I've been asked a lot. And I finally, that's actually a great name for a book. Because, and I've created really what I call a blueprint for standing out in a crowded, crazy, changing new world. Because, Curtis, I, I think the only thing constant in this world now is that it is forever changing. The, the new norm is change, constant change at lightning speed. We think technology has been amazing in the last 30 years. I, I don't think we've seen anything. I think it's only going to get even more explosive. And we have to now really look at ourselves and go, whatever our parents' generation did to get ahead and, and excel and reach their full potential, it's a very different world that we operate in now. It's a world of the technical, the technical side, the digital side of, of things. And, and that's every respect, we're one that we must embrace. I hate digital format. I hate social media and all that everything that evolves around it. But I've realized if I'm going to thrive in this new world, I have to embrace it. And so I did. And, you know, I've learned all about, you know, how it all kind of works and the algorithms and what social media needs from you and all that sort of thing. And as much as it's, I find it a kind of a bit of a, an unpleasant thing, I have to embrace it and get good at it. And so that's what I share within the book as well, is that, Forget about attitudes towards, you know, embracing social media. It's the future. It's your, your teens, your people in your teens now are going to be 20 and their 20s and five to 10 years time. They are going to be your audience, your market. What, where are their eyes going to? They don't look at advertisements in a magazine anymore. They don't read newspapers. They got their eyes firmly on their phone. That's the interface they look at and on computer screens. So we have to work, we have to know with the 20s and 30-year-olds of today and, and tomorrow, how can we if, we, if we're selling products and services or whatever we do, we're putting thought leadership out there, how's it going to be seen? And I talk about that a lot in the book of, of how it's going to be seen and how we must do what we can to get our message in front of those people, in front of those markets, as well as I say, in the third section, we've got to do with ourselves our, and, and to, to make sure that we stay relevant in our industries, we stay relevant in our organizations, in our communities. If we want to really stick out and be seen because everybody is going to be loud saying, pick me, pick me. And we have to, if we're really passionate about what we're doing, if we really want to be influential in what we were doing, what we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be taken seriously, then we better get smart 
quickly to know what kind of world we're operating in and what we've got to do to be seen and to stand out in a crowded, crazy, changing new world. And as I say, I talk about relevance, reinvention, and forming our, our resilience and about focus. And there's so many ways you can do that. And, then, and I talk about them a lot in the book, everything from you know, our lifestyle. Our, people are living longer, and that's, which is really great. And so, you know, I think retirement ages are going to go up and up. So we have to work out with our health. We've got to stop eating crap. That's what we've got to do. So we've got to stop eating all the sorts of things that are killing us and putting us into hospital. And I'm, I'm so glad today because we're talking, Curtis, um, the North American experience is unbelievable, is that you guys, your hospital rates are, are off the track. You know, you're, you're still not eating as well as you guys should. And I saw it there when I lived in the United States, you know, for that 10-year period, is that you're still eating far too much and you're eating a lot of processed crap. And, you've, you know, if, I, I'm thinking that your readers could, would get a lot out of this just by really confronting themselves, saying, I've got to stop eating crap and I've got to start eating what all the nutritionists tell me I should eat. You've got to get fit. You know, we're going to live longer. What's the point of it if we're constantly limping around or we're in, we've got crutches or we're walking sticks and we're just having, and because we punished ourselves when we were younger. We've got to get fit. We've got to stay fit. We've got to serve people. We've got to find out how it is that we can serve other people's needs and wants. We're all in this together. We've all got our own journeys. We've all got our own pain. We've all got our stories. And the only way that we're going to be really be happy is trying to make sure that we're cognizant and aware of other people's pain, other people's needs. And try to, what are we? Are, are, are we going to help other people out rather than just ourselves? If we can find ways of doing that, we're going to be a lot more happier ourselves if we can find ways of helping other people. I'm always talking about re-educating and staying curious. I'm really worried in this modern day age of low, low concentration levels and attention spans, how much we have, are switching off. Uh, people, I know the news is a terrible thing and all the, all the news, big news stations want to shock us and, and they want to you know, put fear in us and all that sort of thing to keep their ratings going. But it's turned people off so much, they just don't know who the prime minister or presidents of countries are. They don't know what's going on around the world and they think, oh, well, I'll find out eventually. People have just switched off in interest. And if you're going to play that game, you can't be surprised if you're not, if you're not being taken seriously yourself because you've got to stay curious about what's happening in the world. You have to know what's going on. You don't have, you, and you've got to, you don't have to you know, embrace things or, or, or do anything about it necessarily, but just to stay cognitive of it, to stay aware of what are the, what are the main issues that people are facing in the world. It doesn't mean you have to rush and all of a sudden give money to organisations or whatever, but just staying cognitively aware. Read about it. Stay curious. Curious is something which is fading, I think, massively in this world and people have stopped being curious. It's too scary for them. And they go, oh, look, I'm just going to be in my own community, hanging out with people I know and trust and what's the point of going out there and and learning what's going on and the rest of the world when it's all a bit scary and it's too much. No, no, no. I'd say you, you're going to run the risk of becoming pretty irrelevant yourself if you do that. Uh, you know, people are always, when I meet people, people always quietly 
comment to me how how impressed they are that I I seem to be aware of a lot of issues going on in the world. I seem to be, you know, quite knowledgeable about current events. That's a big plus. That's something that I hold on to and I say everyone should, you know, guys, if you really want to be taken seriously, stay relevant in this world, you have to know what the hell is going on in the world and don't switch off, but embrace it. Be curious. And, um, you know, can you be part of the solution? That's, uh, that's another message I have. And re-education is part of that as well. We never stop learning, ever. There are people for good reasons who are getting university degrees in their 80s and their 90s. You never stop. Your brain is the most wonderful, wonderful organ you have in your body. And it's the one that's going to keep you together. It's the one that's going to keep embracing life and waking up every morning with real purpose. And uh, what else? In that book, I talk about ways of keeping ourselves together. And one of them is of, of meditation. There's a whole lot of ways we can keep calm and, and keep on top of things. I, I talk about my own experience of, of finding transcendental meditation it for me, and it could work for other people. That's as an option I talk about. I talk about embracing technology and starting to learn the, the tools. And really important to attend. If you're, if you're in the industry, make sure that you attend trade shows of your industry and go to conferences, meet like-minded people, share war stories. Learn, keep curious about what are other people doing? What is out there that I can make a contribution? What problems can I solve? About understanding clients' needs, that's another important thing I talk about. I talk about what, looking at if you're in business, what makes your competitors successful? You know, don't just dismiss them and see them as an annoyance. Actually, what is it that they are able to do? And is there something there that I can, I can kind of do as well? But obviously with your own flavor. And, you know, having a social presence is important. No matter how much we think of the evils of Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of thing, there's ways that we can also use it, which isn't all about, oh, look at me having a cocktail on the beach. You know, there are ways that you can share your, your soul, your, your inner thoughts, where you are a person who is influential in a really positive way, that you have something to share and to use it in a, in a, in a right way. I talk about building a reputation as a problem solver. That's a massive thing that people forget. What's the best value you can really be to people is that you solve problems. If you're going to be a person who complains a lot, you know, and seems to be always forthright saying you're offended by things and that, you know, what makes you upset, you're pretty useless to anybody. So what if you're offended? So what if you, you feel this way? Other people don't care. What they will care is if you come up and say, hey, I've got a solution for that. Oh, have you? What's that? And you can come forward and be this person of relevance. And, and if you can share, if you can become a problem solver, a person with ideas, that is a massively useful asset to, to be, to have. And so I talk about, you know, about coming across it, working more on being a person who solves problems rather than announces problems or as, as a person who likes to, to share problems. And through that is becoming a better communicator. That's another big thing. We don't really concentrate on the way we communicate. We just, a lot of us just shout to the hilltops and hop, hop up and down and think that we're communicating really well. And a lot of the time we're losing our audience. If we can find a way of communicating in a way that's calm and rational, you'll be amazed by the power that you will have, the influence that you will have over others. So I talk about that in the book as well, about becoming a better communicator. And going back to the business ethos thing, which is, Another thing that people ask me a lot about, 
I in the business world, Curtis. Sorry, in the entertainment world, you know, we you've probably heard of this phrase called hitting the high notes. Have you heard of that before? Hitting the high notes. Yes, I have. Yeah, and of course, it's in many ways that's just another way. It's a show business way of saying, you know, of peak performance, of 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 working at peak performance, of of continually hitting high notes, of continually excelling in your work, in what you do. And with that, I believe the foundations of peak performance, purpose, action, resilience, and focus, and values. And those are the big chapter headings I have in my second section of the book. Purpose is a massive, massive thing. And to all the readers out there, here's a little little exercise that I, I do with people at a conference. Because purpose is everything. I should have probably started off by talking about purpose more than anything with this book because we, a lot of us don't know how to define our purpose. And that is an amazingly important thing to do. Someone asked me 10 years ago, and they said, Daryl, can you tell me in one sentence, just one sentence, not two or three, one sentence, what is your purpose? And I sat there and I thought about it and I thought, oh, my God, I don't know really. I thought about it. I tried to come up with things, but of course I kept on coming up with two or three or four different things, which is of course, you know, hard to put into one sentence. And I said, no, no, one sentence, one sentence, just a clear, you know, no more than 10 or 12 words. Just what is your purpose succinctly? And I couldn't really do it. And it wasn't until a few years later that I was able to sit down and I have, I have an hour succinct answer for that is that I want to entertain and educate. That's it. My purpose is to entertain and to educate. And I remember the entertainment part came when I was a, when I was a lot younger. It's probably my young teens. I remember Michael Jackson being interviewed by, by some entertainment reporter. And he was, at, he was at the top of his career. He was touring the world. And this is even, this is even before the, the Bad album. It was that he, so he, he was asked, you know, you know, you're top of the world. You're, you're king of pop. You're, you're the biggest name in the world. What is your, what do you want to do? And he just looked at the reporter. He said, I just want to entertain. I just want to entertain. And I remember as a kid going, wow, yeah, I guess you do. That's, and it's just struck with me, that simple sentence. He said, I just want to entertain. And I knew that that's kind of like what I wanted to do. Now, obviously, I'm not in the pop world and I'm not even, not even you know, a speck on, on the toenail of, of, of Michael Jackson, what he was able to achieve. But the point is, is that, that I've been able to live a very fulfilling life in a different genre with that same purpose. I just want to entertain. And I've been, I've been at a 1,500 special event gala dinners. I've been at, you know, over sort of a 400 concerts. I've, I've, I've performed, you know, thousands of nights in front of 2,000 people in the big show, biggest, some of the biggest shows of the world. And that's fulfilling my passion. That's fulfilling my purpose. I just want to entertain. And the other part of the edu- is, is to educate. And because I, I did become a school teacher early on, because I came from an education family, my grandfather was a principal of a number of schools, and he ended up becoming the principal of Auckland Teachers Training College in the 50s and 60s. And then he was he was invited by UNESCO to lead a delegation to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia in the days when Emperor Haile Selassie was the emperor of of Ethiopia. And their their instructions were to to build a sophisticated education system in Ethiopia and to build training colleges for teachers. And so he spent 10 years there, 10 years. He, 10 years, he loved it. He fell in love with it. He and my grandmother lived there for 10 years in Addis Ababa. 
toured the country and set up edu- primary school education institutions and basically, you know, taught young Ethiopian graduates to become school teachers. And it was an incredible time for him. And I and when I was in Africa, I was in Malawi because dad was a lawyer in Blantyre. But, but we went up to Ethiopia a few times when I was a kid. So, but I, I don't have a memories of Ethiopia. But it was just a, you know, it was in my blood was was education. And and so when I when I became a school teacher, I never actually taught for many, many years. The back of my mind, I I and I've, in the last 18 months during COVID, it's come home to me just how much I love teaching in a way that I never really thought before because I hadn't really had the chance to do it. I was a trained teacher, but I hadn't really taught. And But I have now for the last 18 months. I've had kids every day, and I've loved it. So that those are the two purposes of my life is to entertain and to educate. And if I can keep doing that till, till you know, my end of days, I think I'll be, I'll be ecstatic. But a lot of people, once you've done that, once you've got your purpose, so, so I say to my, my, my big message to all, my, all the listeners out there today is, is really quite, try to find your purpose. It's a hard thing, and, and it might kind of almost upset you that you necessarily can't really nail it down, and therefore, therefore you might feel quite, you know, loose in the world, you know, like you're on a, on a, on a boat which has no sail, and you're just floating aimlessly. And, and it is important to sit down and actually work out what the hell am I on this planet for? What can I really do with my time, my precious time on earth? What can I do to, to be of service? What can I do to really make a mark to make this world a better place and to, you know, forge a career for myself and, 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 and to be someone of significance rather than just be a player in the background? You might be quite happy being a player in Crackdown. I'm not putting that down at all. But if you are imagining, if you're listening to this podcast, you're someone who actually wants to make a mark in this world. And so, therefore, first thing, first thing, if you're not sure how to do that, is to sit down in one sentence and write, what is your purpose? Could be anything. Could be anything from, I want to feed my community. I want to, I want to help my community to learn how to read. I want my community to stop and fighting. I want my community to, to love each other more. I want to, I want to be a teacher. I want to be an architect. I want to, I want to help people who are in, you know, I want to help women who are, are abused. I want to help families who are struggling. There's just so many things that you can be involved in. And you've just got to be able to write it down in one sentence and really look at it and, and chisel it and refine it. And then, you, and then after that, when you've got that, you've got to write down the word action. Action is important. Action means going out there and actually taking action, doing what you know you've got to do, which could be difficult, but you've got to do it anyway and start making your purpose a reality. Start doing whatever it takes. Get out there and make it happen. Then you're going to, and that way you can build momentum. Momentum is a big thing. Momentum is a thing that comes from action. If you take action and you're really passionate about it, momentum builds. And when momentum builds, it's a wonderful thing. Whenever all of a sudden everything is taken, it's, it's just thing for you almost. But then along the way, you'll notice that action, that momentum comes and goes. And you're going to hit lots of brick walls along the way. You're going to have some high notes to hit and some pretty low ones as well. And some days you'll question what the earth you're doing it for. And other days you're going to be thanking the heavens and and jumping up and down, woohooing, doing a, doing a happy dance. 
But the happy dance days don't happen all the time. So if you can build, build an inner resilience, an inner way of saying, I'm going to be okay. I know I'm going to be throwing curveballs all the time, but I'm going to let them bounce off me and I'm going to get up. I'm going to, I'm going to shake the dust off my shoulders and get on with it. And that's, I mean, I've had so many times that I've hit brick walls and I talk about it in my book. For some reason, I'm okay. I wake up the next morning. I'm like, ah, it was a bad day yesterday. Let's start again. Let's get into it today. Let's change some things. Let's take some action that, that we start to um, improve the situation and whatever that is. So if you can build up the tools that of, the, of your inner resilience, then you're going to be a very successful person. And with that, along with that, of course, eventually self-belief. And self-belief is, is the, the ultimate high note. Self-belief, when you truly believe in what you're doing, that you can achieve everything, anything that you want. And I've been there and I know what that's like. And uh, that's what I try to do every day, have the purpose, have the action, have the resilience. No, and with that, I'm built with the self-belief that I need to, to fulfill those ambitions and dreams that I still have. So those are the main cause of peak, peak performance that I talk about. And part of that too is one word I forgot to mention is focus. There's so many distractions that when you do take action, when you have your purpose, that you've got to focus. Focus is hard, but you've got to do it. And along the way, if you've got the right values, and I do mention values, values is important. If you've got that mix happening, then the only good things can happen. So that's a rough idea there of, of the book that you were asking about, Curtis. Hope that, hope that kind of gives you an eye, your readers a bit of an idea. It does. So tell us about any current upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? I've got a really exciting, I can't tell you about because I've developed this world first thing over the last few years that I've, um, I'm currently in negotiations with a big Sydney hotel and all the hotels are closed in Australia. They have been for 18 months. There's been no reason to go to a hotel and they're in a world of pain. But these massive five-star, the Hiltons, the Stamfords, the, and no one's going to them because we don't have any international visitors. In Australia, you're not allowed to come to Australia. Even if you want to do Curtis, you'd have to do two weeks in a hotel quarantine. But if you're prepared to do that, and that's fine, but you've got to pay for that hotel quarantine too, by the way. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to allow you into the country. It's all a bit uh, very strict and very, very tough. So the, the hotels, of course, are in screaming agony. There's no one at all. And, the, and I was in the city the other day. I was in Sydney City. It's a fantastic city if you've ever been to Sydney, if any of your listeners here, you know it's a brilliant city and it's on the waterfront. There's the Sydney Opera House, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and there's no one in the city. It's a ghost town. These big sprawling roads, main roads and arteries and buildings, and, and no one's there because it's, we're in lockdown. Unlike your American cities, which are back open again, which we look and we, we look in horror. We go, what on earth are you guys doing? You've got growing COVID cases coming out of your ears. We're nearly at 80% vaccination, 70% vaccination, and we're still not prepared to open. Whereas you guys are only like 60 or five or, or, or that. You, you're, you're up new thousands of you guys are getting COVID every day. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. So talking with a major hotel uh, of a big thing, which I, I think is going to be a world first, and it's going to, I can't give too much away, but it's going to involve, no, no, I can't even mention it. I don't want anyone to know. <laughs> so I know that's not much fun and it's not useful to anybody, but I uh, probably shouldn't have even gone down there. But I do have a big project and I'm hoping that by March and April, we're going to launch it and it's going to be a big thing. In the meantime, there's not much news when you're in the world of a lockdown, except that I'm still loving being in front of the classroom, being in front of the kids, teaching that. I, I, I also met a CD last year 
of some big of the big show-stopping songs from my career and also from the from the musical theatre world. So um, with the book, there's a part of the back which gives you a URL. You can download them all for free. I recorded 10 tracks, big songs from, from the big shows. And if you if you if you've got the book, you can you can just copy the URL and download all, all of those 10 tracks. So that kept me busy last year as well. Yeah, so so no big projects this this Christmas yet, or what we're doing leading up to Christmas, because there's nothing happening. And all of Australians, very frustrated. We desperately want to get out of this lockdown and we want to get our lives back. But until then, we can't. And so <laughs> it's all about planning for 2022. That's the year where hopefully our lives come back together again and we can hop on planes and go anywhere we want. At the moment, we can't go anywhere. So it's really tough, really tough for us. We've, we've been very ultra strict. What city are you in, Curtis? I am in Junction City, Kansas. Wow, right in the middle of the United States. I've flown over Kansas many times. Um, I've flown from LA to New York many times, and I've been been closest I've been to you is probably you're not far from Indianapolis. From Indianapolis, are you? Try Kansas City. Yeah, yeah, but Indianapolis is a, is it kind of one or two states next to you, right? No, Indianapolis is a little up north. Indiana's sorry, Indiana, the Illinois. state of Indiana. Right. It's, it's one or two states above you. Yeah, the real heart and the Kansas is probably one area I haven't been. I've been to the south and right up and down the west coast and the east coast, and and you know I've been to Illinois and Minnesota and all that kind of stuff, but haven't been right smack in the middle. Right. I've been to I've been to twenty six. That's not too bad. I've been to twenty six of the of the states. That's not That's too over bad. Half of them. Yeah, it's over half. Yeah, over of half. Them. Been over half of them. Yeah. Well, so give us um, some. Give us some contact information so people can connect with you, your website, your social media links. Yeah, look, I love you. Please say hi, anybody. Just to say hi, just to say, you know, listening to the podcast and, and you enjoyed it, got something out of it. I'm on, uh, on darrellovegrove.com and that's D-A-R-R-Y-L, Darrell, D-A-R-R-Y-L, and then Love Grove, so L-O-V-E-G-R-O-V-E.com. And, and, and get on there, just say hi. Would be great to send a message through. I'm on, if you put that name into Google, there'll be pages and pages, lots of stuff. There's lots of YouTube clips of me performing or speaking on stage or singing on TV or something like that. And the name comes up a lot. I'd love to hear from you. Just see, see what you got out of the, out of the, the podcast today. And yeah, I, I really appreciate any feedback. That'd be, that'd be great. And, you know, what else can I say really? The book that's a bonus, that'd be great. I think you get a lot out of it. And of course, make sure you download those tracks for free. Or as I say, just say hi. That'd be fantastic. I'd love to hear from you. Ladies and gentlemen, DarylLoveGrove.com. Be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible after listening. Also, Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store, download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Daryl Love Grow, thank you so much for joining me today. Curtis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And everybody there in the States, hope you're all taking care and uh, all the best for Christmas and 2022. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.